Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is currently on assignment, checking out the flora and fauna of Aspen. Joining me on this episode is Detroit Free Press's Steve Byrne. Hello there, everybody. I'm very glad to be here on The Projection Booth. Steve joining me to discuss a pair of documentary films, Elijah Drenner's That Guy, Dick Miller, and Sophie Huber's Harry Dean Stanton, Partly Fiction. So let's start with Harry Dean Stanton, Partly Fiction. Here's a preview for the film. Photographed doing movies. After a while, I get tired of it. Everybody talking at me. Can you what they're saying? The echoes on my mind. People stopping staring. I can't see their faces. Shadows of their eyes. I'm going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain. Going where the climate suits my clothes. He's been in how many? 170 films or something? Uh, over 200. Over 200. 50 maybe I've lost count a long time ago how would you describe yourself there's nothing there's no self <laughs> how would you like to be remembered doesn't matter he's also one of those actors who knows that his face is a story and he doesn't have to the, the, 
you just have to be in that thing, you know, and his face is the story, you know. I mean, you, you read all kinds of things. And... God, he's a, he was so much a part, a part of my life that we, he, when I was still working at the Troubadour, he would get up and sing with me every now and then. He usually, he loved to sing Mexican songs. And uh, as far as, well, speak of the devil. The big stars of Orion. <laughs> My love behind. So, Steve, what did you think of Harry Dean Stanton, partly fiction? I thought this was really a standout documentary for sure. You know, there's there's so many celebrity docs out there. And, you know, with my job as an entertainment editor, you know, I love them in general. But you, you tend to watch them and sometimes the kind of the, I guess, the tropes or the basic narrative structure of them, you know, they, they tend to blend together or be similar and the way that the way that they approached this one, I just thought was, you know, it was more original and it kind of fit Harry Dean's personality, I guess. And uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed it from front to back. When did, were you first aware of Harry Dean Stanton as an actor? Wow, um, I was trying to think of, trying to think of that. He's not somebody that like you know who um, you know through my I guess movie watching life was somebody who I was drawn to in particular. In fact, I, I think this you know this documentary opened my eyes to him a little bit more. I definitely remembered seeing him you know in my late high school years in, in Pretty in Pink. Um, I'm not sure that that's the that's the hipster. Uh, the hipster one to drop, but that's one that I really remembered. And, you know, and brushing up here a little bit, I you know, I guess that would be where I would start. That's where I remember him from. Yeah, I think that's probably also one of the first places that I saw him kind of hits right around the right time. But I was a big fan of Cool Hand Luke when I was growing up and kind of remembered him from that one and then going into like some of the Lynch films and stuff. He just has that unforgettable face, that kind of hangdog look about him that is just really he always stands out no matter how big or how small the part is that he's playing. You know, he definitely jumps off the screen without having those kind of classic uh, movie star looks, that's for sure. I mean, you know, you in reading a little bit about him, and also you hear about him in the documentary. It sounds like uh, you know he was quite the ladies' man through his career, and you know he you wouldn't immediately pick him out and go, okay, this is going to be the guy that you know Debbie Harry is chasing around the country, or is you know with Rebecca Bignornay before she's with Tom Cruise. It's just that you know I learned that about him through the doc, and like you said, it's that that expressive face, but not that naturally you know Hollywood good-looking face. I was really kind of impressed by how much the filmmaker focused on Paris, Texas, because I have to say that's not one that I necessarily go to when I think of Harry Dean, even though that was one of his really big kind of leading roles. For me, I guess he was more of like the leading role that he was, even though he was kind of second banana in Repo Man, where he was this kind of sage character to uh, Emilio Estevez and that. And I kind of think of him more as that, but then I was glad to see her focus on Paris, Texas, because like I said, that's not a go-to film for me. When you say it's not go-to, did you, you not enjoy it or just you don't, maybe not more your, maybe up your alley, I guess? I saw it once a long, long time ago. I mean, it came out in 84. I probably saw it uh, maybe 87, 88. So I was probably 16, 15 years old. 
I don't think that it's necessarily aimed at teenagers. <laughs> so I would like to go back and revisit it, especially now that I've seen more of Inventor's stuff. He's kind of you know fallen off the radar for me a little bit, but going back and catching his earlier things is definitely something that I want to do. I've been wanting to watch The American Friend for like the longest time, and I don't know why I haven't queued it up to watch it. But yeah, it's uh, I would like to go back and, and give Paris, Texas a second chance from the perspective of a 42-year-old man as opposed to a 16-year-old boy. Yeah, well, I went and watched it to, to get ready for this. And I have to say, you know, while it's it stand out in a couple of ways, one, just like you said, him in a leading role, it's not really where you where you typically think of him. But, you know, some of that classic acting that he does, which is so expressive without doing very much, you know, the first... Uh, I don't know, it's probably the first 35, 40 minutes of the movie. He doesn't really say anything, um, you know, before his, his his brother comes back to try to find him. You know, but he's obviously uh, kind of wandering aimlessly, or at least it appears to be aimlessly. And uh, he won't talk to his brother for a good chunk of that time when they're heading heading back to Los Angeles. And But he tells quite a bit of story just with the little looks of his face and the little twitches of his eyebrows or when his, his brother's trying to prod him on. And uh, you can see he kind of is ready to break out, but but doesn't quite. I, I thought that was it, I thought it was a great movie. It's a it's a great performance, um, you know. And he really his character kind of flowers out from beginning to end. It's one to go back and watch. I bet you would enjoy it more than you did as a teenager. Put it that way. <laughs> I'm sure I would. Yeah, he's been in so many films that we've either talked about or covered on the show, or he's worked with directors that we've focused on here on the show. Like, you know, I mentioned uh, Wild at Heart, where he was working with Lynch. He worked a bunch with Monty Hellman. He was uh, terrific in Cockfighter. I'm hoping one of these days we can do Escape from New York, because he was one of my favorites, his brain. And it's just like, for a while there, I really couldn't see movies without seeing Harry Dean. He was just in so many things, whether I was going back and checking out old stuff or if I was watching new things or current things, he seemed this omnipresent character, uh, character actor, I should say, in my life for a while. So it was really nice to see a whole documentary just focused on him and focused on his music. I was really kind of impressed by the way that music is integrated into the film. Absolutely. That was one of the best parts of it, I thought. I mean, his voice, it seems to me, I'm guessing, has seen better years. You know, he's getting up there and, it, and at times it sounds a little bit, um, maybe a little bit frail or a little bit warbly, but um, he, he's, so, he's so expressive with his face and his singing is still very expressive. I, you know, I found myself after watching this, which was, I don't know, when you, uh, probably whatever, a week or 10 days ago. And, you know, for a good week, his, his, I was hearing his version of Blue Bayou in, you know, in the earworm version of it was, um, just the way the director came in tight on his face and, um, and the way he sang, I, I found that it really brought a lot out of him, I guess. It's a classic face. And to have that close up of him while he's kind of in that other place, you know, channeling this this inner emotion and singing and everything. It was really, I thought she made a really good decision by doing that. It helps set the movie up because, you know, it doesn't, as I kind of said, it doesn't kind of have that classic documentary biography feel where, you know, it starts out and gives you a little bit of an overture of the person's career, then dips back into his childhood and slowly progresses through his 
his ups, you know, his peaks and valleys, that kind of VH1 behind the music thing. Um, this is, I guess, I don't know if impressionistic is quite the right word, but it's more just a vibe, it's a vibe movie. And, you know, and for a guy who has so much vibe, that seems like it was probably the right choice beyond the fact that, you know, it would have been tough to do like a comprehensive biography of him with, you know, when you have more than 200 movies in the bank. Before we cut out of here, I should probably say that Harry Dean Stanton Partly Fiction is available over on Netflix streaming, so easily available for people to check it out. Uh, at least as of this recording, it's available, and they should go over and, and see it. And so we're going to come back with uh, another discussion, but before we do that, we're going to play back an interview with Sophie Huber, the director of Harry Dean Stanton Partly Fiction. I'll ask you a real easy one if you could tell me who you are and what you do. Who am I? I don't know. <laughs> but um, I am obviously a, a filmmaker. I've, this is my first documentary. I worked with a film collective in Berlin before. Uh, we made four quite um, experimental films as a collective. And I've known Harry for probably as long as 20 years and started recording songs with him six years ago, and that gave me the idea to do the film. How did you and Harry meet? We met at Dantanus, which is the bar that's also in the film. We met through a mutual friend and just hit it off and stayed friends ever since. It seems that the Harry that we see in the film has no pretense whatsoever. I think that's true to a certain degree. And also, it, you know, that's what I wanted to aim for were these moments where he seemed as truthful as he can be. And to me, a lot of those are when he sings. To me, he's almost more truthful when he sings as opposed to when he talks. So how did you kind of come up with the idea that it would be good to do a documentary about him? It really started because I, I love the way he sings. There's no records of him. Uh, only, you know, he's on a couple of soundtracks, but he's never had an album. And a lot of people wanted to record him and invite him to their studios, but he never, um, I don't know what it was, but he just didn't want to go to a studio. So I went to his house to record him, and seeing him sing these songs and what happened on his face, which is so expressive, made me want to film it. Now, you've directed documentaries before. Can you tell me about your documentary work? Uh, no, that's my first one. Oh, really? Yeah, so that's, the, what I did before was, you know, in that um, collective we had in Berlin, they were not documentaries, they were very exper experimental um, fiction films. So this is the first one I did on my own. That's well, quite a way to cut your teeth on a film, doing a documentary about such a renowned actor. Well, it was pretty hard to get him to agree. <laughs> is that conversation from the beginning of the film, is that kind of uh, how, his attitude? With, with Harry, I think there's always two sides. You know, on uh, one hand, he doesn't... He says he doesn't care about, you know, the ego and all of that. On the other hand, I think he does have a need to be seen as every performer does. So there were, there were always these two sides and I have to, had to find a way to um, make it interesting for him. I really think he doesn't care to talk much about his um, past because he tries to live in the moment as, as fully as he can. So there, too, it came back to the music, which he clearly had some regrets of not having done more. So that was a way to um, engage him. And it really took a year of me, you know, calling every other week to see what we can do. And um, eventually he, he agreed to at least re record a couple of songs with Seamus with the camera there. How did the rest of it kind of come about? 
actually some of the interviews, like David Lynch and Debbie Harry, they all agreed before Harry agreed. So that helped too to, you know, persuade him because he felt like if they do it, I should probably do it too. And then we we filmed over a period of two years because um, the DP, Seamus McCurry, is a very busy man. He's, he he does a lot of, you know, big blockbuster films and um, others. He, he got Harry Dean into The Avengers, for example. So I would wait for him to be available. So I took uh, two years, filmed Harry for about eight afternoons and then the stuff at night. So we didn't really have that many hours. How did you decide which films to kind of focus on? I wanted to focus on the ones that um, he seems to be most known for and also that seemed to show elements of his persona or his being where we could tell things that he doesn't really want to tell about himself. So, for example, Travis of Paris, Texas seems to have a lot of parallels with, with Harry Dean. So whatever he didn't want to express, we tried to get that through through these clips and then for Europeans, it's definitely Paris, Texas, where people know Harry from. And then I guess here it's Repo Man. And the other films that, I mean, David Lynch um, is definitely, you know, one of the important influences he's had. I, I needed to find a way to connect the film clips to what's, that, what's happening in the film, because it was important to me to um, sort of create a, a flow rather than a, you know, cut up separate sequences. So that was a part of how I chose or why I chose certain scenes, you know, for example, Cisco Pike, which is not his his most known film, but it had the connection to him being a musician and Christofferson, who's in the film. And then, as I said, with Paris, Texas, that's probably the biggest part of the film. I think that's almost 20 minutes of the film because that's his most, it was his only leading role and has all these parallels with his personal life. What was your kind of first experience with Harry Dean, the actor? What do you remember him most from? Was it Paris, Texas or something else? Yeah, it was Paris, Texas. I grew I, I'm Swiss, so I grew up in... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Switzerland and um, I saw it there, I guess, in the late 80s or so. And it had a very strong impact. I was curious about the Lynch part. Were those questions ones that he came up with or that you came up with? No, his son has a project called Interview Project on the internet. And they go around asking these set of questions to all sorts of people throughout the country. And I printed these out and and asked him if he would ask them to Harry. How was it working with David Lynch? It was great. He was there for a full hour and we could actually... I was actually thinking of you, uh, you know, making a bonus 
DVD of just that one hour because you can actually use the whole thing. It's very entertaining and um, it was just, you know, moving how he wants to, how he wanted to support Harry and um, the film and took his time and it was very generous and nice. I have to say the scene with Christopherson and Harry, that feels so genuine and that to me really kind of of touched me, just the camaraderie and the friendship that they've had over these years. What was it like working with Christopherson? Well, he too, and I'm glad you say that because it's always a scene with Lynch that sort of gets more attention. But um, to me too, the one with Christopherson is where Harry is more, um, it's more like, uh, they're more like pals. And with David Lynch, it's still you can see the actor and the director kind of relate, relation. Um, and Christopherson too, he took, you know, he just, he agreed right away and was just very warm and approachable and supportive. I was curious about the songs that are in the film. How were they decided which ones you guys were going to use? There too, it it depended on, well, first of all, we chose the ones that we felt were the strongest performances. And then also how they would fit into the cut. You know, obviously we had several versions and sometimes we had more songs or less songs. So we just had to distribute them sort of evenly and find connections to what he's saying so that they would complement it. Tell me about your editing process on this. Well, the thing is, you know, Harry's philosophy of everything being one connected whole, which he says all the time and is very important to him. I wanted to use that in order to, you know, create that, make the film as as one flowing piece as possible, where all these elements somehow connect to one another. I don't know if you saw Let's Get Lost, the Chet Baker documentary, which is one of my favorite portraits of, a, of an artist. So I, find, I found the editor and we worked together on it. And uh, that was a very good collaboration with um, Angelo Corral and Russell Green. So this was your first feature-length documentary. How was it received and where is it played? It premiered in, in Venice at Venice, Venice Film Festival in 2012. And um, it had its American premiere at South by Southwest. And it's it's been going really well. Um, we had great reviews, and um, now we just released the soundtrack, and the DVD is out. So, um, and I hope the soundtrack will sort of have its own life as well. So you finally have Harry on an album. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of nice because that's how it all began, and now he has his album, and I have his album. <laughs> do you feel a sense of accomplishment now? Uh, yeah, I do. It's um, it took a very long time. But um, I'm happy with with how it ended up. So what are you working on now? Several music-related things, um, people, portraits. I'll talk about it when it's more shaped. All right, we're back, and we're talking about a pair of current documentaries. Next up, we're going to talk about Elijah Drenner's That Guy, Dick Miller. The Undead. You played a leper in that movie, right? Yeah, he cleared up my skin nice. A friend of mine was working for Roger Corman. And he had to drop something off, and I said, uh, can I go with you? The first film Dick and I worked on together was Apache Woman. Dick Miller was an essential part of those early Corman films. Hi. My friends are still amazed, and the people that I work with, that uh, my brother's an actor, and he's been in so many films, and he's such a well-known face. Someone once told me he made about 300 of them, which is an awful lot. Dick Miller arrives in whatever scene. Hire Dick Miller. I'll write him a part for the picture. Yeah, he said I was going to shoot my ear off. That ain't nice. When Dick walked in the room, it was like, oh, 
I know this guy. Ready for the question from behind the magic hole board? I kept seeing Dick Miller everywhere. He seems to have come out here to be a writer and sort of ignored it completely. I was writing. I wasn't selling too much. It's a tough business and it's full of hopes and dreams and disappointments. Because of that, I don't think he allows himself to be totally accessible. Listen, I tell you something now. Big secret. I don't know what. I really literally don't know what happened. Did you ever dream of being a star in those days? As all actors can tell you, it's not a gravy train all the way through. Let me finish, will you? What he was, was the underdog who rises to the occasion and conquers. It's like the Washington Monument of actors. No, that's what I said. No, that's what I said. No, I said. I was just really impressed with Dick. This guy doesn't get enough big parts. Schmuck. He's definitely a good luck charm. They used him in every movie they ever did. My ass. If you're on screen for a very short period of time, do you work in slightly bolder strokes? Let's get out of here. It's the fact that he's so Dick Miller. He's so himself. Completely 100% pure Dick Miller. Dick Miller is the quintessential character actor. Gremlins. I was just staying alive making movies. I think I must have been four or five pictures before I realized I was a movie actor. What was her first argument? That's what I'm trying to argue about. All right, Steve, kind of along the same lines as before, when was the first time that you became aware of Dick Miller? The first time I became aware of him, I would say, was probably about a year, year and a half ago, honestly, as like as an actual actor's name's presence. I was doing a little boning up on Roger Corman stuff. And so I watched Bucket of Blood, which I had never seen, you know, back in the day. His performance, you know, I think probably one of his main leading roles, if not at least one of his key leading roles that he had through this really lengthy career. And he, he jumps out that he kind of plays against his, his type that he became known for. But that's when I became first aware of him of, here's this guy. I'm trying to think of when I really first recognize that here's this guy that I see all the time and that, you know, he has a name and that he has a, a career. Cause he just seemed like sometimes when I'm watching movies, you know, as a, as a young person watching stuff, it's like, Oh yeah, well, you know, who knows how movies are made and this kind of just happened. It's like, Oh, well this guy must've just been around all the time and was just showing up because he was just in Again, it felt like everything that I was watching, and I think it was really there was a uh, a promo that they used to play, I think, on MTV for Rock and Roll High School, and it was just a close up of uh, at one point, you know, they're they're showing the Ramones, and they cut over to Dick Miller, and he just goes, and I think that was when at first he kind of locked into my brain for that. And then afterwards it was just like seeing him and everything kind of going through a period of my life where I was just looking at all those AIP films and you really couldn't not watch one of those without seeing him, you know, seeing him, seeing the AIP films on mystery science theater, seeing them on cable. And it was just 
one of those faces where it's like, wow, this guy has been around forever. And then kind of like you, I finally watched Bucket of Blood. I think it was last year. They showed it on TCM Underground, and I don't know why I'd never looked at it before, but it was so wonderful to see him in this leading man role, which I had never seen him in that before. I'd always seen him as the guy who shows up to deliver the pizza or the guy who's running the bookstore or the guy who's you know the mall cop or whatever it is. So to see him in this film, I was like, oh, wow, okay, this guy really has good range. And I really kind of felt for Walter Paisley, the, his character, even though he was kind of a damaged person. Yeah, and he's, you know, you get to know him later years, it seemed like, where he's mostly kind of playing working class types or kind of schmucky types. And, um, and in that movie, he has this kind of, you know, I guess it's almost nebbish or, or nerdy, nerdy type personality, but also has that kind of yearning of wanting to be accepted and wanting to be, a, clearly he wants to be an artist in that movie as well. But um, it's just, it's, it's weird to think of, you know, that I first saw him and I didn't first see him in that, but I was first aware of him in that. And then when you go back and start like scrolling through his IMDb or whatever, and you're like, well, yeah, his role in The Howling, which is a movie that I, I was a pretty big werewolf fan, and that was a movie that made an impression on me when I watched it, and I remembered that scene. But um, honestly, when I watched Bucket of Blood, it did not connect with me. Oh, that was you know that was that bookstore scene, and, and kind of the same with with Gremlins, which is a movie I probably watched five or ten times when I was a teenager, but haven't watched since then. Um, I didn't remember that that was him in that movie until I saw the documentary, actually. Yeah, going back through his filmography for this, I was like, oh, yeah, we've covered a bunch of films that he's been in, like Gremlins and The Howling. And then I was like, oh, yeah, he was in Darktown Strutters. It's like, he's just been in so many movies. And it's just, it's like, once I see that he's been in that, then his scene kind of pops back into my mind. But I a lot of times it's not like one of those like, you know, oh, that's the Miller, that's the movie with Dick Miller in it. It's more like, you know, oh, he was in that? Where was he? Oh, okay, now I remember exactly where he was. And he does add so much to things. And I guess it was just, he was just part of this tapestry of all these films that I enjoyed so much. And he just was woven in so tightly that he never really kind of st stuck out for me. So there's just a very few roles for me where it's like, oh yeah, Dick Miller, he's in that movie without having to see his filmography and go, now where was he in that one? Right. Kind of like with Little Shop of Horrors when I was like, oh, he was the guy that ate the flowers, which, you know, was a really memorable, I think they even, he either saw some or something like that. It was a really little memorable part from that movie, but I don't think I ever would have I don't think I would have ever tagged it as a certain person. So what'd you think of the documentary? Um, I enjoyed it as well. I, I, I would say if you were to compare it to the Harry D. Stanton, I didn't like it quite as much. It did have a little bit of that, uh, you know, kind of classic, here's this guy you might not know, and here's why you should know him kind of feel to it. I mean, all the clips and stuff, I'm, I'm not unrecommending it by any stretch, but um, it, it, it started to have a little bit of a rat-a-tat-tat -tat feel to me where, you know, it was just like, here's one movie he was in, here's one movie he was in. And it didn't seem to have maybe like a central guiding tension to him that made you want to really, really care about him. Or maybe they did some of the, maybe there were just a few questions more I would have liked to see in the math. Like, did it really bother you that you never broke out and became a big star and instead were kind of this 
at times were almost like it had a sight gaggy type element in, in many, many movies. But I enjoyed it overall. I really enjoyed it. I was glad to see the quantity and the caliber of people that um, Elijah was able to get for the film. So I will tell you that I've been trying to get John Davison to be on the show for a long time. Uh, we talked about RoboCop and you know we want to talk about White Dog coming up and he just won't ever give me interviews. He's not helpful. He will point me into other people that, you know, I should be talking to, but he's just like, no, no, not interested. So to see him show up and for so long in that guy, Dick Miller, I was like, okay, this is really good. I'm glad that he's there. And I'm glad that he's sharing these stories, his story about white dog and the uh, crapping and peeing monkey, I think is one of the highlights of the film. The thing that jumped out at me was just seeing so many clips of him doing so many little funny things or just so many little idiosyncratic like touches he would bring to roles you know the the rock and roll high school thing is an example um you know he's barely that's probably what he's probably in that movie for two minutes if that but um like you said it was enough for somebody like mtv i remember seeing it seemed like it used to be played on that usa up all night every other week and that was where i first saw that movie so yeah it's just the the doc does a really good job of showing i, I mean you said range i think that maybe that's not the the word a lot of people would attach with them but uh, i would agree with you um he just was able to bring out those ticks or um, the expressiveness of certain characters in really quick ways. One of the things I really enjoyed was that not only is it kind of the story of Dick Miller, this writer who goes to Hollywood and becomes an actor, kind of reminded me of that uh, line from Barton Fink. Writers come and go. We always need Indians. You know, mm-hmm. So he ends up being one of the Indians, literally, and a, and a cowboy at the same time. I enjoyed that, and I also liked the whole idea of him and Lainey going throughout the film and showing their home movies and really kind of making it almost like a love story of Dick and Lainey and the trials that they've had together throughout the years. I, I found that to be pretty enjoyable. Yeah, they're like a squabbling little, I think somebody says it in the doc, like they're almost like a squabbling little sitcom couple, but you can see their affection and romance like shining through the little the little bitty bickering that they do. You know, it sounds like there's kind of an, probably even an interesting backstory to, to her career a little bit or the, her lack of a career to some degree. And so that 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 was a question that I left wondering. I wanted to learn a little bit more about her about her life and either her attempt to be an actress or her. I wanted to know a little bit more about that, even though the movie wasn't really about her per se. Yeah, when I talked to Elijah, he talks a little bit about that as far as her kind of wanting it to be more of Dick's story. So I found that like, oh, okay, because she's been a script supervisor in just a ton of films, and then yeah, I was very surprised. I had no idea that she was the nightclub stripper from The Graduate. <laughs> I um, mean, such a memorable scene, and it's like I never thought who is that actress, and then just finally figure it out it's like oh wow okay yeah again no idea there for me either and uh she was she was quite a little firecracker back then yeah absolutely absolutely she still she still looks really good i don't know how old exactly how old she is but she she looks really nice in the movie i'm really looking forward to the dvd release of this film because i could really stand to have 
hours and hours more of interviews. I don't know how much more is out there, but just hearing Alan Arkish and John Davison and John Sales and all these guys just talk about what it was like working at AIP. I mean, we've got a little bit of that in the, the Corman's World documentary, and it's, it's, it's there in this from a slightly different perspective. I mean, I think I could listen to these guys talk about stories from you know the, the 70s, 80s, 60s all day long. So anything more, I will definitely be down for with this. Yeah, for sure. Arkish comes off really well in the movie. I thought he's a very good storyteller. And, and Roger Corman, of course, always seems like when you see him talking, he seems so against type to what the types of movies he actually does. So, or does and did. It's, it's wonderful to hear him tell stories like, you know, it's, it's like hearing an English professor talking about these movies that have all these over-the-top elements. There's just there's something about watching Corman talk that I, I really, really like. Well, let's go ahead and take another break and play an interview with Elijah Drenner, the director of That Guy, Dick Miller. My name's Elijah Drenner, and I directed the documentary That Guy, Dick Miller. I do, among other things, uh, documentaries and electronic press kits and uh, DVD, Blu-ray bonus features for uh, primarily catalog titles, but um, every now and then I do uh, contemporary uh, movies as well. We've talked to a few other people that do kind of similar things that you do. It seems like it might be a little bit of a dying art. Is that true? I get the feeling that certainly the studios don't care about their catalog titles. Well, some do, some don't. Most of the studios don't really care about it, and they're licensing it to companies who do care about it. Those catalog titles are mostly, the successful releases I think are primarily genre-related, maybe so much not uh, old westerns or dramas or anything like that, but certainly any kind of niche, like film noir, are probably still pretty successful, but in terms of creating supplemental material, you can really only get people behind stuff that are uh, paying money for budgets to produce extras for genre, horror, sci-fi stuff. How did you get in the biz? About 2007, I had been working with um, Jack Hill. Actually, I've been working with him since about probably 2000, trying to do a documentary about his life and his films. Uh, This was while I was still in film school in Minneapolis. And... I had moved to Los Angeles and I had shot all these interviews and I knew Jack and I just, I couldn't really get anybody interested in a documentary about him, but I just didn't have anything to really show for my work. And then I, (laughs) and then I got this bright idea to reissue spider baby and reinstate some of the footage that Jack had cut for the film because I knew he had the original camera negative back. So long story short, We uh, got the film out through uh, MPI Media, Dark Sky Films, and with Dark Sky Films, I started doing other stuff, primarily their Arthur Marks titles, and I just did Death Spa for them uh, earlier this year. Then we did American Grindhouse and and just sort of it was all kind of all within the same territory. You know, the you know, you're dealing with a lot of the same people. I was able to kind of pitch myself as doing extras for Shout Factory for a lot of the Corman titles because I knew everybody. I knew how to find the actors. I had already shot stuff with them or I could get them to shoot stuff again. So it was a very uh, organic process, I guess. The whole idea of 
what you're doing, the documentary about Hill, reissuing Spider-Baby, all this kind of stuff, sounds totally ambitious. This is your first project right out of school? I actually quit school. I didn't even finish film school. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was ambitious. But, you know, I think you sort of have to have lofty ambitions if you're going to get anywhere. And, you know, the documentary itself never materialized, but it led to more uh, more projects, ultimately. And some of the stuff I shot for the Jack Hill documentary ended up in American Grindhouse. So we're actually uh, going to be doing something with some of that original footage that I shot with Jack uh, coming up, I hope, this summer. American Grindhouse is a fantastic documentary. How did that kind of come about? Again, you sort of just sort of take a self survey of what you've gotten, where you're where you're at, and who you know. And it was about the same time as Spider Baby came out. Grindhouse was coming out, and I just I think I knew, and a lot of other people knew that that was a very exciting, fresh, sexy new word for something that was uh, <laughs> kind of. Uh, old, you know, something that we all knew. We all knew what these movies were, but now we we had a new word to sort of hang our coat on. So I had this idea to make a documentary about uh, actually sort of expanding the Jack Hill concept of doing multiple filmmakers about their lives and their careers, what happened when the uh, exploitation industry basically stopped. You know, that's the only reason why they stopped making movies was because their market that they were making movies in changed. So we did that. We shot stuff with like Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Ray Dennis Steckler and Ted B. Michaels and Larry Cohen. And it was a lot of fun, but it didn't really come together in the end the way it needed to be. So we sort of reevaluated our footage and shot interviews with contemporary filmmakers and historians to really contextualize the movie and to actually open it up much wider and do the entire industry of, of exploitation, beginning with all the way from Thomas Edison, all the way up to 2007 or 2008, whenever the movie came out. So you've been doing these documentaries, you went to film school. What was your forte beforehand, and what was your interest, what got you into film school? Well, I, I always loved movies, and I, I knew it was something that I wanted to do. You know, I, I was originally an art studio student, and I was going to do animation but I just kept kind of being pulled more to being interested in shooting film uh, rather than agonizing over uh, sketchbooks and, and uh, <laughs> painting classes. Uh, it's still something I really love, although I don't do it much anymore. But um, that, was, that was really the catalyst, I guess, was just sort of deciding, okay, drop animation, go to movies. I mean, movies were, were what I loved and it was uh, I really enjoyed, I think – like a lot of people who probably listen to this and probably you as well, it was just the joy of discovering stuff. I mean, it was, you know, from a teenager up and up to, I mean, even now, but in my college years, you really had to search for a lot of these movies that I was interested in. I discovered Jack's movies. I found him and connected to him and called him and we stayed in touch for a long period of time. And he was actually very, very humble about the idea of doing a documentary but uh, about himself, but he trusted me, and we've stayed very good friends for almost 14 years now, so it's kind of crazy. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit to Dick Miller, 
when did you first kind of realize who Dick Miller was? Because I'm sure that you saw him a lot before you finally kind of said, oh, it's that guy. Yeah, I think we all have the, oh, that guy moment when you're talking about Dick Miller. It's hard to say when I didn't know who he was. I mean, I've probably always known who he was. Certainly, I think with Gremlins and just the films of Joe Dante, uh, he was a big, uh, I wouldn't say influence on me because I've never done any narrative films, but he was always like in like my top tier, like favorite directors. Um, he was someone that I gravitated more towards than a lot of other, uh, people in my age bracket and of similar interests. I really love Joe Dante movies. So naturally I always noticed Dick Miller, Bob Picardo, Toby Keith. I always noticed these guys. So I guess that's, it's hard to say when I, when I actually noticed him because I feel like I've always known who he was. So how did that guy, Dick Miller kind of come to fruition? Almost, uh, almost a reverse, uh, uh, of, uh, of American Grindhouse and the Jack Hill documentary. It was start, it started off originally as an idea that was pitched to me to do a piece about Dick for a, uh, German DVD release of war of the satellites it was for Subculture Entertainment in Germany, who was one of our uh, financiers, and they are distributing the movie in Germany and Austria and all German-language countries. They said, what about a Dick Miller documentary? I was like, well, that's a fantastic idea. There's no way we could do what deserves to be done for this DVD release, but let's have fun and do something and put it together. And the first step is to get Dick and get him on board. So we shot the interview with him. Uh, that's the primary interview you see in our movie where he has much shorter hair (laughs) and it was so good. It was such a great, fantastic interview. And I'm listening to this, all these stories and just his, just his banter with Lainey happening off camera. And it pained me to know that most of the stuff that was best wasn't related to war of the satellites and I couldn't really use it. So we just forged ahead and shot interviews with John Davison, Alan Arkish, and Ira Bear, and Jackie Joseph, and Joe Dante, and Jonathan Kaplan. And all those interviews are in the documentary. We knew all along that it was sort of compromised. It was a compromised idea. And then, for whatever reason, that War of the Satellites release just never came to fruition. We were given a small budget to shoot interviews, and that was it. And Kickstarter came around. The idea of crowdsourcing came about. And I started looking into it, and with Subculture's blessing and bringing Lainey, Dick's wife, into the fold, we started a campaign to raise money to turn it into a, a standalone feature-length documentary. And here we are. What part did Lainey play in this? Uh, she plays a lot of parts. <laughs> you know, she's on camera for a lot of stuff, but she was also um, a producer and you know we we share the producer credit but you know i knew after our first meeting with dick that we weren't going to get anywhere unless laney was on our side and by giving her you know getting her involved on a producerial level had you know she was going to be on our side and she was going to make sure we got the home movies transferred and all the photos um, scanned and she would be the one to when so-and-so wasn't returning my phone call, she could call them and she could get them to do the interview because she was, you know, the producer. So she was 
uh, absolutely crucial to getting this movie made and remains to be uh, keeping us on track with all of our stuff for all of our film festivals. She is a force to be reckoned with. She seems like that kind of comes across on the film, and I, I really appreciate her. It seems like, you know, I never really knew who she was and then she just comes to the fore in the documentary so much and it's great to see that relationship that they have yeah and and i didn't really know how we how that would play out in the movie i didn't really know she was actually very um she didn't really want to be on camera that much she didn't really want to talk about her history she wanted to be about her husband's and I, you know, I, I just told her, and it's like, you know, we're going to be, <laughs> we're going to have a real disservice because so much of Dick Miller's story is your story, and your stories together, and your banter together. When even when you're not, even when she wasn't on camera, she was still this voice in the background. And it's like, Lane, we have to get you guys on camera together. It's, um, and I kind of wish there was more of that. Although we do have quite a bit of it. Um, Dick is inherently funnier when he's being interviewed with someone else. I think he's someone who is, he's very shy, but he's, he's an actor. He's used to sharing the screen with someone and having, you know, either him being the straight man or having a straight man to sort of play around with. And they, they have a very, uh, fantastic relationship and they are they are a, a great comedy team <laughs> so it was uh, it was fun to really get them going and they never gave me any notes on the movie uh they loved everything that we used the, the funnier the better who did your animation for the film uh we had uh, a bunch of different animators two of them uh were brought in through our co-producer and one of our animators mike hegel you know i was a little afraid to have different animators with different styles kind of come in and give their take on something i was afraid that we might lose some sort of uh, symmetry but i think it worked out and i just kind of let them all do their thing and and it was Derek and Nate and Mike, who Mike Hegel, who really focused on a lot of the 70s section, really the, the, the New World section. There's a lot of animation in that that we needed. Uh, Mike Bowes, who did most of our, our lower thirds and sort of graphic treatments and stuff like that. Uh, but also a lot of our uh, transitional poster montages. Uh, he did a lot of those as well. So it was a concentrated effort by uh, those people who are, frankly, just fans of Dick Miller who wanted to jump on board and collaborate. I love the white dog animation, the story. <laughs> That's so funny. I was, I was just sharing a few uh, emails with uh, uh, Krista Fuller, Sam Fuller's wife, uh, because uh, this movie, uh, Dick Miller is showing at the Edinburgh Film Festival, I think, like in like three days. And as fate would have it, uh, the documentary of Fuller Life is showing right before ours uh, at this film festival. So I was uh, telling them to be on the lookout for it um, because uh, that white dog story, I think, seems to be a highlight of the movie for a lot of people. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that animation. Tell me about your Kickstarter. How did that go? It went well. It was successful. The whole idea was to obliterate our goal <laughs> because we set our low, our, our goal um, on the lower end, knowing that, you know, it's like, you know, this dollar amount will get us, you know, cleared on everything. We can handle all the posts and that'll get the movie made for that money. Uh, anything extra would just go towards 
uh, insulary things. And it did. You know, but the big thing is in North America and actually the rest of the world, except for Germany, uh, Laney and Dick and I own it. So that was that really freed us up to be our own bosses. So what were some of the biggest challenges you had for this documentary? I guess if there was one challenge, it was Dick is not a guy to volunteer up a lot of information. Dick just is a shy guy, and he was, he's very much someone who, you know, I think it's a generational thing. People who don't really think about what they've, uh, their, their accomplishments in life. And he is certainly one of those people. He's very appreciative of his audiences. But if you ask him about a movie he made 45 years ago uh, for two days of his life, he doesn't have anything to say. <laughs> you know, I think it's only been until somewhat recently with like, you know, the the uh, particularly his work with Corman, uh, where he has a catalog of stories. But past that, or even just a little bit before, he doesn't really have a whole lot of stories to share. So I guess that was a challenge, getting him to kind of open up about more details uh, about certain things. But And then sometimes these stories would just come out of nowhere, like while we're driving in a car. Like, you know, movies he turned down. <laughs> it's like, why didn't you say that? He's like, I, it just came to mind just right now. I'm like... Yeah, it's fine. I had no idea that he was a writer. Yeah, a lot of people a lot of people don't. I mean, you know, I think mainly because, you know, if there was one movie that, that people would know it, know him as the writer on it would have been Which Way to the Front, but he's credited as Richard Miller and that could be anybody. Um but yeah, he's uh you know, he always thought of himself as a writer. So that's another reason why he doesn't have a whole lot of stories to tell. He wasn't a an actor with an ego, you know what I mean? He was he was sort of working on the side, thinking he was going to be selling scripts. He didn't seem to be too happy with what happened to Which Way to the Front either. <laughs> no, no. Well, he had to fight to get his his name on it. I mean, his story was that they basically took the movie from him. It doesn't surprise me, but you know, you try to try to find some sort of balance, some sort of equal balance where you don't you know say something that could be. Uh, misinterpreted. I like the way that you kind of slid the Terminator stuff in there too. That's actually sort of based on an actual experience I had at his house shooting stuff because a lot of our interviews we shot at their house and we were over there like the day after Thanksgiving and Dick and Laney's house is like any grandparents house you go to you know the television's on and it's loud and you can't really hear anything and and there's a lot of commotion but Dick is watching TV and all of a sudden, the television got louder and louder and louder. And it was it was his scene from The Terminator. And he made us all stop to watch the scene. And then it was over. He's like, all right, you can go back to doing what you were doing. You know, I didn't know how we were going to start the movie. And I wanted to start it in a sort of unexpected way. And I thought getting him to watch The Terminator at home, at his house, that's always what he's doing. I mean, this was – the movie is – very much the Dick Miller, Lady Miller household experience. <laughs> and you may not know it because you haven't had those experiences, but if you go to their house, you know, that's the geography of their house and he's going to be at home watching TV <laughs> if, you, if you if you go over there. So it's uh, we, we try to just create that experience, recreate that experience for people. What was that reaction like at South by Southwest? Pretty good. It was still really fresh to us. I mean, we were finishing a lot of the posts well into February it, and it remains to be just kind of fresh so <laughs> you don't really have time to second guess what you're doing i guess 
people laughed where I thought they would laugh. You know, I put some things in there that I thought were interesting that may or may not have been interesting to the audience. I don't know. But overall, people seem to like it. So uh, the, the first screening, I think, was successful. Tell me about your distributor. It's uh, Indie Can Entertainment based out of Canada. And originally they came to us just to do Canada. But we are joining forces with them to really handle all of North America. So we'll be, you know, Lainey and I will be having uh, some active involvement in getting it outside of uh, the, his Canadian channels, I guess. So this really is an old school uh, road show. We're going to do it ourselves sort of uh, distribution. Um, but, you know, we're going to get mostly the, the VOD platforms into iTunes and Amazon, uh, you know, basically any sort of instant viewing, do some theatrical stuff probably, and just get it out there for, for people to see. I mean, it, it'll be uh, – people are still asking me when they're going to get their DVDs from, from Kickstarter. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's coming. It's, uh, we just want to get the word out there first. But um, I'm excited to work with, with IndyCan. I'm uh, excited to learn more about the distribution side of it. What's the best place for folks to go to find out more about the documentary? I, I, we, we announce stuff on the Twitter account as well as the, the Facebook page. And I, I also announce stuff through the Kickstarter uh, campaign, posting the blog updates there. But we have thatguydickmiller.com where we have a lot of stuff posted. But the immediate stuff is on Twitter and Facebook. All right, we're back on this special episode of the Projection Booth, and I am joined by fellow Detroiter Steve Byrne. So, Steve, you are starting up a podcast. Tell me about this new venture that you're going into here. As, as I think you and maybe some of your listeners know, my day job is as entertainment editor at the Free Press. Last year, we started a new documentary film festival called Street Film Festival. I'm the executive director of that. And kind of springing out of that, we want to kind of keep find a way to have a year-round presence in the documentary world and also really to keep in touch with it for our festival. So Kathy Kieliszewski, who is the artistic director of the festival, and I are now hosting a new podcast, and it's uh, very simply called The Documentary Podcast. Our first episode appeared a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, I think we're probably going to be on a schedule of one every three or so weeks. Basically, we're going to try to be a very newsy, topical look at what's going on in the documentary world, both specific films, trends, news, digging a little bit into the festival scene. I mean, we're not going to be traveling all over the world or anything, but when we can shoot out to a place, you know, whether it's Traverse City or Hot Docs or Cinetopia or TIFF, we're hoping to do a few on-location podcasts as well. So we're one into it, and um, that's the basic gist of it. Our first episode kind of had three main segments. One was on the Internet's own boy, the story of Aaron Schwartz, who is, which is basically the kind of compelling and sad tale of uh, this Internet activist slash social activist Aaron Schwartz, who a lot of people got to know as he kind of helped co-found Reddit. He helped build some of the language that became RSS. After he became a social activist, he ended up committing suicide, pretty much as the film argues, as a result of a federal prosecution from some some hacking that he did. Um, so we talked about that. We talked with the director of that. We also spoke with the directors of The Case Against Date, which is the HBO documentary that debuted a few weeks ago and um, basically follows the Supreme Court case about California's Proposition 8, which uh, banned gay marriage. 
And we also spoke with um, one of the executive VPs of the PBS uh, series POV. So that was our first show. We were pretty happy with it. We're very early in, you know, Kathy and I are both kind of more behind the scenes people. So it's a, it's a bit of a stretch for us, but we're, we're pretty happy with the way it came out and just looking to uh, keep getting better and keep doing interesting things as we move forward. So where's the best place for people to keep up with this? You can listen to it on the web at freakfilmfestival.com. And it's also theoretically in iTunes. I will be honest, over the last few days, we've had a couple technical difficulties with that. And I think if you looked for it on iTunes at the moment you and I are speaking, you would not see it. But I think that that will hopefully be fixed within a business day or so. So it'll be up there and you'll be able to RSS it, you know, going forward. But we just we had a couple technical issues with it. But you can always listen to it on the web right now. So how did you kind of decide to go about doing this podcast and What's kind of your ideal situation with it? What do you want to accomplish with it? I, I think one of the reasons that we decided to do it was just, I, you know, there are so many great film podcasts and I'm not just kissing up. I honestly feel you guys are, are right up there. I was looking for one when we first started the film festival. I was like, you know, I want to really brush up. I need to learn more. We're going to be sticking our necks out there and creating a film festival that's devoted to documentaries. I I need to be doing my homework and being staying on top of things. And so I was looking for one and there, there have been a few over the years. There haven't been really any active ones recently. And so part of it was just like, let's create the podcast that I would want to listen to if it was documentary specific. Part of it truthfully is a way to, you know, free film festivals still pretty small. It's, you know, in its first year, we want to find a way to make it bigger, to give it a little bit of a national reputation, though I don't really view it as anything that's ever going to become, you know, we're not looking to become Sundance or even Hot Docs or Doc NYC, but, you know, we want to assert ourselves a little bit and we both have journalistic backgrounds. So we figure, all right, a way to do that and a way to get our name out a little bit is like, let's interact with people more and kind of um, assert ourselves in the community, for lack of a better word. Do you think you'll kind of use this as a tool to be able to check out new documentaries and maybe kind of earmark those for next year's Free Film Festival? Yeah, I, I, would, I would certainly hope so. You know, um, I was emailing back and forth with a few people last week. And, you know, and one thing I do is like, you know, hey, we're interested in talking um, about your documentary and viewing your documentary, but we want you to know we exist. And, you know, you get a response like, wow, great. We didn't know that you guys were doing that. And so that's really more in terms of, I, I think of it. It's not, I don't ever envision it being like, Hey, let's just keep, um, flogging whatever movies that we end up showing or flog the movies that we hope to show because, in the same way, like my day job is being an entertainment editor, and that's really my primary job. So I need to kind of, I'm already gotten used to separating that and Free Film Festival to a degree. Certainly the Free Press wrote about Free Film Festival, but we haven't turned our entertainment pages over all to documentaries that we that we showed or that we hope to show. And I would think that documentary podcast will exist kind of in a corollary way. We want to we want to produce something that people are interested in listening to, not produce something that's a commercial for us. It's a, I, I think there's probably a pretty big distinction between the two. So what's up for your next episode? We're still trying to lock in our couple guests, so I don't want to jinx anything. I definitely don't want to commit anybody to uh, commit anybody to anything that they haven't 100% committed to. So I'd rather not drop some names, but I will say. You know, Traverse City Film Festival is coming up at the end of July, and we will be up there. 
So that's one thing that I can say, even if nobody wants to sit down and talk to us, we'll be there watching movies and reporting what we see. So why don't I leave it at that? And uh, if somehow um, I get a couple of these interviews locked in before you post this, I'll drop you an email and let you know who, let you know who they are. All right. Sounds good. So freefilmfestival.com. We've talked about that before. We had you on the show before, and that's the place where people should primarily be checking this out so they can keep up with the podcast and with the festival throughout the year. Yeah. And I should throw in, you know, we'll be definitely um, multiple times. Anytime we have a new podcast going up, we'll be doing it through our social media. You know, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. That will be the fastest way. If you followed us there, you'll quickly know when podcasts are going up and including if we nail down specific guests or anything like that. Awesome. Definitely hope that you or Rob will be able to return the favor and show up on one of our podcasts in the near future when we have, you know, something that would be up your alley and up ours because I definitely appreciate the chance to be a guest with you. Well, hey, it was a pleasure talking to you, Steve. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks also to Sophie Huber and Elijah Drenner for taking the time to talk to me, and thanks for everyone for listening. Rob will be back with our next regularly scheduled show, same bat time, same bat channel, and we will see you next Wednesday. I started writing this song about Chris Gantry. End up writing about Dennis Hopper and Johnny Cash and Norman Norbert. Funky Donnie Fred, Billy Swan, Bobby Newerth, Jerry Jeff Walker, and Paul Seaboy. Ramblin' Jack Elliott had a lot to do with it. See him wasted on the sidewalk in his jacket and his jeans, wearing yesterday's misfortunes like a smile. Once he had a future full of money, love, and dreams Would you spend like they was going out of style? And he keeps right on a change For the better or the worse Searching for a shrine he's never found Never knowing if believing is a blessing or a curse if the going up was worth the coming down He's a poet and he's a picker He's a prophet and he's a pusher He's a pilgrim and a preacher And the problem when he's stoned He's a walking contradiction Partly truth and partly fiction Taking every wrong direction On his lonely way back home He has tasted good and evil in your bedrooms and your bars And he's trading in tomorrow for today Running from his devil's lord, reaching for the stars Losing all the love along the way But if this world keeps right on turning for the better or the worse And all he ever gets is older and around From the rocking of the cradle To the rolling of the hearse The going up was worth coming down He's a poet and he's a picker He's a prophet and he's a pusher 
He's a pilgrim and a preacher and a problem when it's stone. He's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. Taking every wrong direction on his lonely way back home. There's a lot of wrong directions on that lonely way back home.